Welcome to Learning with Lowell. I'm your host, Lowell Thompson. We cover biotech and science-related topics on the show, such as startups working on antibiotic drugs or colon cancer, to venture capitalists talking about funding and how that worked, to people talking about how they found a science-backed startup. Two, and this is one of my favorite parts, people talking about specific science-related topics, such as whales or protein engineering. You're really going to get a lot, and it's all going to be about science on this podcast. Today we are joined by Sam Arbsman, who is an applied mathematician and network scientist, a senior scholar at Kauffman Foundation, and a research fellow at the Institute of Quantitative Social Science at Harvard University. He also works at Lux Capital. Today we'll be talking about the dichotomy between generalist and specific approach, what he's been working on, how he self-actualized, the mentor type advice he gives people, and we get into a variety of science topics and discussions. I think there's going to be a lot for each of you to take. So let's jump into this. What's the daily life as a science resident? Like, what do you do? Because in our previous discussion, you talked about how like it's very fulfilling and you you love it to a great extent. So I'm kind of curious what about it like completely absorbs you like that. So I maybe I should kind of explain like a little bit kind of like the big picture of kind of like what my role is and then explain kind of like more like the day to day. But so basically kind of like what a scientist in residence or at least the way I like what my job consists of is to really act as connective tissue for ideas and people. So what I do is I survey the landscape of science and technology, find areas that I think are of interest to me, but also of relevance to to locks and then do a number of different things. So I might find companies in those areas that we might want to invest in. I might find scientists or technologists that maybe we could kind of build companies around. I engage with the public through writing and speaking about those topics. And then I also connect people who are working on these areas to our portfolio. So I spend a lot of my time talking to our CEOs, figuring out what they're working on, seeing if there's areas that I could connect them to that could help make them do, like help make the companies that they're building even better. But in terms of what that really means on a day-to-day basis, it really consists of, and really me just kind of examining the landscape of science and tech. So reading a whole bunch, writing about various topics, speaking both publicly as well as just to a lot of interesting people. So I actually spent a lot of my day getting to talk to really interesting scientists and technologists, learning about what they're working on, often kind of using whatever lens that I'm currently thinking about and current current topics that I'm thinking about, kind of using that as a lens to try to understand what they're doing. And then also just making connections. I And one of the things I really love is being able to find commonalities between areas that often seem pretty disparate. And if I can do that at a personal level, actually take two people who are working on things that maybe don't seem on the surface that connected, but actually bring them together. For me, that's super fulfilling. And so I get to do that on the, the level of ideas as well as the level of people. So yeah, on a day-to-day basis, it's really just a lot of reading, writing, thinking. For me, actually, writing is a way I kind of think through my writing and I actually kind of figure out what, I, what I'm thinking about in terms of a topic. And so I like to be able to kind of write ab- about the areas that I'm exploring at any one point. Are there key areas that you're exploring right now? One area, I guess, which is a very, very broad area, is basically this area of like computational creativity kind of using computers to augment human creativity. So like that could be everything from like art, music, design, augmenting scientific discovery. There's lots of different areas that it can be relevant for, even like in generating novel computer code, like by actually a program that generates other programs. And so there's lots of different areas. And so there's a lot of basic research occurring in all these different domains. But there's also companies that are beginning to, to, to work on these things as well. And so I've been exploring all this. And for me, I think that if you can kind of use computers to kind of augment this 
quintessentially something that we often think of as a quintessentially human is kind of creativity. I think that's super exciting, both kind of in the machine level as well as the human level. And so I think that's like one area where there's a lot of really interesting potential. And so I've been exploring that. Another area uh, that I think a lot about kind of related to this, the idea of just kind of connecting lots of different areas is the idea of like generalist thinking. And so right now, and we live in this era of specialization where like where specialists thrive. And, like, and we want this. We want experts who are deeply versed in lots of different domains and can can really think about something very, very deeply. And like that, that's amazing. But I think we also need as sort of a complement to that people who are a little bit more generalist in their thinking and kind of can, can jump from different domains to different domains and kind of see commonalities and kind of basically navigate sort of like a, the web of knowledge and see all these inter diff, different interconnections. And so I've been thinking a lot about how, like where, where generalist thinking can thrive, how to promote it in lots of different areas, and really just kind of trying to, trying to identify it in sometimes areas where you don't necessarily think about it. And so for me, I mean, especially in kind of like the, like wearing kind of like my vent, like my VC, like kind of like the venture hat, I think that if you're kind of more generalist minded, if you can kind of connect areas that are not traditionally thought of as related, that's actually like a really important competitive advantage because you can now think deeply about areas that people maybe don't even like there might be like jargon barriers that are hard to overcome. But if you can understand them and see, see how these things are related, that's really important and really powerful. And so I think being able to do that as well as to foster more people who are able to do that can be really powerful. And I think can also just like allow uh, innovation to occur in and sometimes even more powerful ways. To, to preface this question, because uh, there's this thing in, in with our brain where a lot of times like we only know how an area works based on if it's damaged, Phidias Gage, how certain areas were damaged. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah. So I wonder, do you do the same thing when it comes to finding either people, like when you come to these topics, do you use like people who, you know, not the bad type, you know, like things that are going wrong, but things that are going right, like that are people who are really skilled at being a generalist and then use them as case studies to then do larger literature reviews and find more people. The question is like whether or not I'm using kind of like these outliers or kind of the, the anomalies as sort of windows into better understanding what's going on. Yes. Yes, I definitely do use sort of anomalous ideas or individuals or interesting facts that kind of seem somewhat surprising as windows for trying to understand more about a topic. So at the, the level of the individual, I will definitely try to see if someone kind of has a, a maybe a less traditional sort of career path, trying to understand how they got where they are, where they came from, what are the interesting insights and kind of ideas that they're exploring as a way of just kind of like finding interesting things that presumably if someone is an interesting person, they're oftentimes thinking about interesting ideas. And so trying to use that to understand that if it's a an interesting fact or just kind of some sort of curious finding, I'll use that and then maybe look at like like a bibliography of, of, a, of a paper or the, I don't necessarily examine a topic in any sort of kind of like regular systematic fashion. And so it often kind of, I allow myself to follow my interests. And so it's a little bit kind of idiosyncratic, but I do try to actually kind of like surround a topic and, and, and understand it as best as possible. But oftentimes using some of these kind of like anomalous or interesting, except like things that I find and using it as a kind of window to better understand something more broadly. Are there people that are doing really good work as a generalist and as a creative computational mathematician? I don't know how the, the, the way you'd say that, but like, are there people in, in those two that you're specifically looking at right now? Yeah, and I would say, I mean, I mean very broadly, and I, one of the things, be, and coming from the world of, I guess, complexity science and complex systems, because those domains are inherently interdisciplinary, where it's like, it's a set of mental models and mathematical and computational approaches, 
that can be used for a whole ho- – like to understand a whole host of different systems like things from biology, areas from technology, areas from social systems like societies or cities, things like that. Oftentimes, the people who are playing in those areas are going to be a little bit more generalist-minded. And so talking with those folks is is always super exciting and, and often a very nice kind of like generalist approach. Do you guys ever get five or six people like that and sit down at a table and just talk? Because that's what I would do. You know, if I if there's like a, a variety of people that I like, I just kind of like sit them out, sit them down and listen. So, do you ever do something like that? Uh, you mean like just get a whole bunch of people together? Well, I mean like the so like in the in the of the people of the, the topics that you're interested in, and then the outliers that you find that are good or that interest you. Do you ever like pull them and set them all down in a room because you like connecting people and then kind of seeing what happens? An exploratory meeting? Oh yeah, I mean, I guess that doesn't. And happen necessarily as often as, as as I would like, but certainly like like through conferences and things, that kind of stuff can happen. People are together. Oftentimes, these people are kind of like all over the place, and so it's not always easily done. But yeah, when you get these kind of interesting people together, really cool things do result. Excellent. Well, that's good to know. It's I mean, especially with today's internet, it's always good to you know maybe have like a Google Hangout every now and again. Do you have an internal? or external locus of control? I've been asking this a lot of people lately. So uh, I would definitely say I feel kind of like inwardly direct or kind of like, yeah, I, I'm uh, probably more kind of like the internal locus of control. I feel like I, like a lot of a lot of my work is kind of like directed based on like the things that interest me and which is very empowering and very nice. I would, <laughs> that, is, that is of course until like one of my kids gets sick and then suddenly it like throws the whole day out of whack and then I'm like, Subject to many forces outside of my control. So uh, it's always a balance. But yeah, I would definitely say I probably more kind of on the internal side. Do you tend to hit brick walls a lot or get over overwhelmed? And if so, how do you overcome that? So I would say sometimes, I mean, there definitely can be, like when you kind of like are, let's say like working on like like an essay or, or when I'm working on a book, like you can definitely hit brick walls in terms of like being able to kind of figure out, like trying being unable to figure out how best to kind of connect to ideas or articulate something. So that kind of like in terms of like explanation that can definitely happen or in terms of like what you're trying to like as I'm like researching a topic, trying to kind of figure out what I want to think about next. And so for me, a lot of this kind of like creativity or ex- like exploration of information and knowledge, I really think that's an important like you need you need to have a, a certain amount of like balance and like rest, like people who kind of try to just power through and kind of get past some of those kind of brick walls. It's it's very tough as opposed to saying I'm going to kind of pause for a moment, take a step back, take a walk, take a break, come back to this. And then you can kind of look at it with fresh eyes and often um, are able to overcome something that you thought was insurmountable sometimes fairly easily. And so it just kind of requires that little break. And so I think that's often kind of like a, a really sort of like a healthy approach, but it, it also seems to work reasonably well for me. And I think Neil Gaiman, the fiction writer said that to do good art or to be creative like you should try to be bored as well i think you know a number of people sometimes when they're working on something they have like two other screens open or listen to music and they try to have a conversation at the same time when you get stuck you know it's good to take a break but at the same time like allow yourself like the vacuum to create i think was also important mm-hmm. one question I, I knew i wanted to ask you because it, it was on your website and I, I really liked it i think it's a quote by isaac asimov and it goes something like the most most exciting phrase to hear in science isn't it's not eureka but that's funny and i was thinking like that's true like sometimes if i think oh that's a great idea like when something's not working right but it's interesting that's kind of kind of cool so do you have that in your life and how you get to interact with you know in the vc world and with the sciences and with people do you 
get a lot of, oh, that's funny. I wouldn't have expected that and then get to dive into it. Yeah, and I think that actually is related to like what we were talking about earlier of kind of like using these anomalies and kind of like weird stuff as like a window to like better understanding something. And I think that's kind of like a similar sort of thing of like, oh, like things that kind of somewhat don't fit or kind of strange like that can be used as sort of like a wedge to really understand and unpack something that actually might be hiding a huge amount of information or knowledge and like some new idea. Um, yeah, and so like I and to kind of go back to what I was saying before, yeah, I love like collecting little facts and like quotes and like weird science papers and like odd historical tidbits and like bringing all this stuff together. Like, I, I never quite know where it's where it's going to fit, but I kind of view it all as like fodder to eventually be kind of connected together into some sort of like web of knowledge or information. And then I can kind of use that eventually as some sort of like like lens or overlay onto the new things that I see. And so for me, I just love kind of like collecting that kind of like that's funny raw material as because I know eventually it will be used in something. So, uh, yeah, I love it. What are some of the things you're working on now? Because you've written two books in the past. Are you working on anything, any new books or anything really exciting right now? So I, I'm definitely like working on various projects, I mean, like projects related to this, like the things we're talking about with like computational creativity and kind of generalist thinking. I would say kind of in terms of like new books, that's a little bit more on the back burner and kind of like taking a little bit of a break. I'm not like working as like intensely on that. I, I just actually just just published an essay about trying to understand biological complexity through like the lens of how we think about like technological complexity. So basically the idea that like right now, a lot of people who think about kind of like trying to like overclock the human body or like rethink nutrition or do all these kinds of things like they're often looking for like fairly quick fixes sometimes kind of using a sort of like engineering mindset for the body as opposed to saying the human body is this biological organism that's incredibly incredibly complex like like orders of magnitude more complex than like like a piece of software on your computer and to assume that it can be like easily fit to like with like a single line or something like that is missing a lot of that complexity. And so we kind of have to recognize and like take into account the enormous complexity of biology when we try to think about aspects of like nutrition or exercise or various other topics in terms of like, like trying to improve our body and, and trying to kind of, I wouldn't say like be humble, but I think there is sort of a certain humility in the face of complexity that we need to kind of embody. So that's definitely one of the topics that I've been thinking about as well. Is there anything in biology in particular that you find really complex that kind of like makes you think, oh, that's funny? And biology is, I mean, it's like an enormously large field, but like overall, it's just like, it's, it's just wild. Like, and I think like kind of the, the more you kind of delve de more deeply into like whatever kind of sub area, the more uh, just kind of you realize that like you're all like, we're still scratching the surface and there's always kind of more to learn and think about. I think it's like epigenetic, epigenetics has really only been a thing for the last 15 years, I think. If, if my memory serves. So it's, it's like, and that's one of the fundamental tenets of how our DNA interacts with our environment. So it, it always just makes me think like, what other things are out there that we don't know yet? Yeah, actually related to this. And I think it was, this might've been when I was in college. I remember reading, I think it was like the obituary of some Nobel laureate in biology. And it mentioned like in passing that he was like the person who discovered some sort of like cellular organelle, like the Golgi apparatus or like endoplasmic reticulum. I don't remember exactly what, which, which it was. And I was shocked. Like I hadn't realized that like, like that someone in my lifetime had discovered these things. Like I thought they had been known like basically since like the microscope had been invented and like, but it was like, like much, much more recent. And uh, yeah. And so like th those kinds of things are it's just enormously exciting because you realize like there's still so much more to learn. And I think like, like working at the frontier of science is like, that's why scientists work at the frontier. It's like, it's where you, you know the least, but the most exciting things are happening. And that's truly, truly exciting. Neil deGrasse Tyson talking about how we could figure out, 
like through math and like how the periodic table works, you can kind of like infer elements that like fit in their rows, but we don't know what it is yet. And they, they figured out one that used to exist, but doesn't because it has such a quick decay rate in the universe. So they recreated it in a lab and called it technetium or something like that. Yeah. We did that. It's all super exciting stuff. Yeah, right? It's like the, the same brain that was out on the plains, like hunting deer and stuff, is the brain that built Skype for this conversation to happen and this laptop and the internet. It's like, and yet, do you think there's, here's a good question. Do you think there's an upper limit to what we can understand when it comes to complexity? Or do you think like if someone worked hard enough, we could understand everything? Like if, like in a niche way, do you think if someone like worked really, really hard, they could understand maybe like a specific aspect of the physics of the universe? Or is there like, if you just go deep enough, it's like inversely tiny and complex as everything associates with everything. So I think in in some ways, I, I think we are like, there are limits to what we can bump up against. So like, for example, I mean, especially like, like in the like technological realm, like we kind of think, oh, like we built these things, like we're reasonably logical creatures, we should understand everything. It's obviously we're we're not. We're kind of we have we're saddled with lots of cognitive biases and all this kind of stuff. But we're also like, and we have like limited brains. There are many many technologies that we're creating that like we don't we ourselves don't fully understand. Like and we, like software might have like hundreds of millions of lines of computer code, things like that. They might interact in weird ways with lots of feedback. I think both there are things like in kind of like the natural world that maybe we don't fully understand. And there are also things in like the human-made world that we might never be able to understand. At the same time, though, I do think that when we think of like understanding, though, it's not sort of this binary condition between like either you fully understand something or you're in the state of total ignorance. Like there is a spectrum. Like there are ways of understanding. So let's say you're confronted with a large complex system, whether it's in nature or made by people, you can like understand it in different levels. You can like understand it in its entirety, which sometimes is possible, in many cases is not possible, but you can understand maybe the overall shape of it or just one specific part very, very well, but not necessarily understanding how it all kind of interconnects together. And I think, I mean, so like there's still the role for specialists, there's still the role for generalists, and but like kind of, and there's this, I would say like, iterative approach to understanding a lot of these big complex systems, even if we might never get to a complete understanding, we can kind of get closer over time. And so I think when we think about understanding, we have to recognize that it doesn't need to be binary. And and and, and that's okay. And we can kind of like recognize that we're going to get closer. We're going to kind of try to understand it more, even if we might never get there. And I think as we build these kind of like, as we we ourselves build complex systems, or we kind of engage with a complex system of like the human body or an entire ecosystem, we have to kind of reckon, like recognize the fact that like, if it has like, a huge number of interconnected components, like there's no way we can fit all of that into our brains. And like, that's fine. And actually related to that, there's this concept called, I think it was like the, like the increasing burden of knowledge. I don't remember the exact term, but the idea is like, like as, as science or engineering or technology, like whatever domain you're looking at, as it grows, in order to kind of make discoveries at the frontier of that domain, you have to know more and more over time. And eventually we're going to get to a point where like in certain domains, it requires maybe like more than like a human lifetime to actually learn all, all that in order to actually make a discovery. And so for me, and I, and I think in many cases, we're not quite there yet. And you can kind of subspecialize and learn kind of something more narrow in order to kind of avoid that. And like there are ways of kind of also like building systems to make them not totally overwhelming. But I think we have to kind of recognize that, they, yeah, that we are going to bump up against certain limits. At the same time, though, going back to like what I was discussing with computational creativity, in order to avoid, in order to avoid totally being overwhelmed and bumping up against those limits, we can use like, computers and machines to actually help us and like kind of augment our creativity and our understanding. And like in the same way that like, we, like, I mean, 
the naked eye can can see a certain number of stars in the sky or can see kind of like like certain like bugs as like the smallest thing maybe around us. We can use microscopes and telescopes to enhance and augment our ability to see the world around us and actually see new things and learn new things. And we can use the same sort of like cognitive tools to actually kind of better understand the systems around us. And so I think there's there might be limits, but we can actually augment them, um, even if we sometimes might never fully understand everything. And, and that's actually, quite frankly, like super exciting. It makes me think of the TV show Battlestar Galactica. Do you, have you seen it by chance? I have. Do you remember when Cavill, one of the Cylons, says that he's angry for having human eyes and he wishes he could experience a supernova with all the senses that a, a machine could? Oh no, I don't remember this. Oh, this is that. Uh, that's great though. Yeah, you're right. Like, like we are inherently limited, but like, yeah, there are ways of like overcoming these things. Yeah. So, is there anything like if I could, we have like a magic box, and you can pull out one thing and you kind of hook it into your your brain. And it won't damage you. It would let you experience something as if you could like touch it. Like if you're touching your desk, like you could touch, like you could feel it that well. What what thing would you want to experience? Would you want to experience like a supernova? Like what would be like your thing? It would be interesting to be able to somehow like truly experience like huge, almost like geological time scales. Like if I could kind of like internalize the sense of like what it means to like live through like millions of years, like what that would be like. That sounds interesting. I don't know what that would mean. I don't know what that would entail for for changing my brain and and everything else. But yeah, that that sounds kind of interesting. I imagine it would be kind of like going from a cup of water to a gallon of water and then trying to get back into a cup of water in the sense that you'd probably have a lot of loss of data and experiences because you only have one brain. Like it's a, it's still a finite thing. So I feel like you'd get a lot of really interesting experiences. But when you like finally downgraded back to Sam brain normal. Not, not to be mean to your brain or my, or my no, brain. No, yeah, you would just kind of end up with like sort of like a shadow of the uh, of, of, of the original experience. Kind of like the inverse of this. If you if I, if you could like choose one, I don't know, one system or one complex system and I could say you get to know all about that system. If you like you'll work for like 100 years, you get to live for 100 years. I don't know. But you'll work for 100 years, but you'll understand it completely versus living like a thousand years. Which one would you rather have? Would you want to like have like a general knowledge and then be able to have a satisfying life for a thousand years or would you like to completely understand yeah i mean i have to say like sometimes like fully understanding something that might be a fool there and kind of going back to what we were saying like i'm not sure like anything like like anything that's worth devoting a hundred years to i don't know if like if if you'll ever fully understand it so i i think kind of and then I would say coupled with that, though, like I'm I'm interested in lots and lots of different things. And so I'd, I think I'd much rather be like thinking about many, many different topics for a thousand years as opposed to just one for a hundred years. So I, I think for me, the choice is easy. I, I, I take the thousand years and getting to think about lots and lots of stuff. What do you think is about yourself that has allowed you to get where you are and to work on what you are working on? Like, you know, you know, the universe is like infinite. Right. So and you could have done and you know, you could have been an accountant. Maybe <laughs> in another life, you'd be an accountant. So what do, you, what do you think are the things that led you here to the Skype call versus being an accountant? It's a good question. I would say, I mean, so certainly I am omnivorously curious. Like I'm interested in like pretty much almost everything. And so like, I, I love like learning about tons and tons of different things, but also trying to kind of find ways in which they are fundamentally connected. And I think so I think that is kind of a useful skill to kind of getting to where I am. And then I would say also related to Related to that is also like I think like I guess like 
my ability to write in terms of like both like it's been like helpful in terms of like articulating the ideas and my interest and the things that I'm thinking about. But for me also, and I was saying this earlier, like I think a lot through my own writing. So like in the act of writing, I learn more like I kind of like work through a topic. And so for me, the fact that I kind of really enjoy writing has been enormously helpful in terms of actually articulating my own ideas, as well as sometimes finding connections between ideas I didn't actually think were related. So I think those are kind of certain certain skills that are uh, that that have been helpful. Would you consider yourself more of a generalist, or because you have a PhD, so you have, or you're somewhat of a, a specialist? But it seems like you kind of gravitate more to being a generalist and being able to be more broad, and then as you choose, go depth. Yeah, and so I would say. I, I definitely lean towards kind of the generalist side. And in terms of like, I mean, my more specialist training happens to be kind of a set of tools and techniques, like from like kind of like the complexity science, network science, the kind of applied math world of like these kind of mathematical, computational, mental model approaches that that even though they are specialized and I guess like you can learn them deeply, they also happen to be they have the benefit of like being able to be applied to lots of different areas. So I kind of was able to use some of that kind of specialized knowledge and apply it in kind of a generalist way. So you kind of, in some ways, kind of getting the, the best of both worlds, which is nice. I, I read a lot of biographies and Theodore Roosevelt, for instance, like with his early years leading up to him becoming president, it's kind of like he was being shaped for it his entire life, which is kind of weird. Do you ever feel that sense when you look at your past, like everything was kind of leading to you being here? Or was it 10 years ago, you'd be like, no, I'd never be where I am now. Or do you think like looking back that you see that it was slowly progressing to where you are now? I would say, I mean, certainly like anytime you kind of like do that sort of like retrospective kind of thing, there's kind of like a little bit of like trying to create some sort of narrative on top of like just life. But I would say the fact that I've, I am like comfortable in many different scientific domains. I've spent time in like in the world of science and like various different sciences and kind of the world of academia. I've spent time in the foundation world and I'm also kind of in the world of startups and venture capital. All those kinds of experiences have made me very comfortable in jumping from one domain to another and kind of being able to translate ideas from one area to another. So I would definitely say in that sense, all those different experiences have actually been very useful in terms of where I am now. I think one of the things that in our previous discussion that I really liked was that you feel really self-actualized in the role you're in, which is kind of, it's a weird phenomenon because I, I don't know many people that are like, oh, I really like where I'm at. This is where I want to be. And I think it's a really good thing, like to know where you want to be and where you belong. Have you, now that you kind of know what that feels like, do you like mentor other people to help them find where they belong? No, I, I, I definitely, I, I certainly like talk to like friends and colleagues, I guess, are kind of like working through this. So not like necessarily in any like formal sense, but like if people are kind of thinking through kind of like what they want to do, I definitely enjoy that. I, I think there's like something to be said for trying to be deliberate in how you kind of think about your role and what you want to do. Because I think the more deliberate you are, the better you can kind of like say, okay, like what is the goal of like what I want? And maybe like, okay, I want to aim towards this. And like, how do I kind of work backwards and kind of figure out, okay, what are the steps to get there? And I think that it kind of is a very useful sort of thing. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I, I, I definitely enjoy thinking about that. Mm. Have you ever come across like a mini you, like a younger, like someone who's not you, of course, but that you think, oh, wow, this person is kind of like me. And then you like took them under your wing or are you, are you at the stage where you'd have like a wingman, a wing person? That you'd want to like. Uh, yeah, I'm not. I, I'm not quite sure. I mean, I definitely like met met like people who kind of had like like various aspects of kind of what I'm doing or kind of like at earlier stages. Yeah, I wouldn't. I I don't want to say I'd like. Oh, I've met like <laughs> the major version of me who's like <laughs> yeah, like, like kind of my, my little sidekick or anything like that. Uh, I, I don't think I've quite had that. But I, I definitely I, I definitely enjoy like when I see someone who kind of like 
reminds me in some in some way of like me at like an earlier stage or like either me or kind of like someone in kind of like the similar kind of field that I kind of operate in. I definitely want to try to make them to I, mean, I want everyone to be as successful as possible. But I definitely will. Like if someone kind of reminds me in terms of like their career, or their interests, background, it will resonate. And I'll say, OK, like because like, I've been kind of fortunate to kind of find a role that really fits all the different things that I'm interested in kind of what I do. Like I want to kind of find other ways for people who are also thinking about interesting things in similar kinds of ways to also kind of find 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 their niche. How would you mentor someone and find their own uniqueness? Well, I mean, so I think it's a mixture of like introspection and experimentation. So it's like like being able to kind of like sit down and actually spend some time kind of thinking about the things you enjoy, the things you're good at, the things you can actually like provide value to others with. So it's a mixture of that. And then it's also just like trying experiments like like, oh, like have if you've thought for a long time, like you really want to do some writing, don't just kind of think about it, like actually give it a shot. And like, maybe you'll really enjoy it. Maybe you'll be really good at it. Or maybe within a few weeks, you'll realize you kind of like the idea of writing, but you don't actually enjoy the writing itself. And you've given it a shot and you can kind of move on like that now no longer has to be kind of this like, like, what if that's kind of in the back of your mind, and you can kind of move on. And so I think that sort of combination of introspection and experimentation can be really powerful in terms of kind of like iterating. And it's like, which is basically similar to like the scientific method of just like, like having a hypothesis and testing it and kind of seeing and hopefully kind of incrementally getting closer and closer to something that really resonates with you and uh, and fits what you would want to do. I think Hunter S. Thompson said that his favorite part of writing a book was having it written. <laughs> like that that definitely is very rewarding. I would say that. But and yeah, having having written yes, having it done is nice. But I would say also the like the very early stages are also very exciting where you're just kind of like throwing down a whole bunch of ideas and and then and even some of the edit, like the editing stages are too, are good too. I would say kind of like there's lots of ups and downs. But yes, sometimes having it done is a, it's a very re- relieving stage. Not to give you an existential crisis, but do you ever wonder what your legacy will be? Like if you, I don't know. It's like something I think about all the time, even though I'm, I'm a young person. Yeah, and so for me, I, I, I have act, I, I've thought about this a little bit. I, so I was reading this, this I think it was, it was a quote once where it was like, it was like some fact where it was saying that like the, for the vast majority of humanity, you are not, like people are, are forgotten uh, about 70 years after their death. And so the way that works is because it's like after, like after anyone who knew you is dead, you are just basically forgotten. And so like that, which means like the vast majority of humanity is like forgotten within like less than a hundred years. And, and it's very, very humbling. And I, and I think, I mean, like on the one hand, like there, and it's kind of like, like there's like the, um, there's also like the Shelley poem of like Ozymandias of like, it's like, Oh, like this like a mighty King, like look on my works in despair. And it's like this sort of, um, it's been reduced to, the statue has been reduced to rubble. And mm-hmm. so I, for me, I, I have very much of a kind of like a, like, like the long-term perspective is that, I don't know what I, what I will do that matters. And so for me, my legacy, I hope, is to just kind of like get people to think about ideas in exciting ways, especially in terms of like the like my role in venture. I think of myself as kind of like a midwife to innovation. And so if I can kind of bring about a like a more positive future through my assistance and advice and help while and like through like like the companies that themselves are kind of bringing out this positive future that's wonderful um and then also on a very personal level i feel like like in terms of like my legacy like if i'm if i'm raising my children right that also gives me a very strong sense of f- fulfillment and meaning um, and so i like i don't feel like i need to create massive institutions or or, or other like large things like like this kind of like desire to kind of stand the test of time i think is 
there's a certain amount of folly in that. And so for me, it's very much like, am I making an impact in the here and now in a way that I think is like sort of a small part of some sort of larger thing. And so I, I kind of mentioned the kind of like midwife to innovation, but similar to that, like there's kind of like, like when I think about catalysts, like a, a catalyst is well, it's, it's something that kind of like helps make a reaction occur more easily, but it's also like really just kind of like doing a small, it's like playing a small role in some sort of larger kind of process. And I like to think like that is like, like they're, I mean, they, I, I think that is like a very, like a, a very good way to think about one's role, kind of the world. Like if I can kind of, bring about a more positive future, even in some small way, then I feel like I've succeeded. And that feels really good. To jump to probably our final question, when a startup lands on your desk, what do you, what do, you do? I mean, so I mean, first I'll just kind of like, I guess there's like the initial filter of like, am I just interested in it? Can I, and cause like, I think if, if a startup seems like it could do really well, but if you have trouble being passionate about it, you're not really going to be able to kind of help it succeed. And like, you're not gonna be able to like do its founders justice. So I think that's a kind of an important initially kind of like first pass. But like as you kind of, but if so, like if you're interested in it, like you kind of like engage and begin to learn more about it, you kind of need to begin thinking about like examining kind of the different risks, like whether it's like like founder risk, like is like, I mean, it, like has this, this person like started things before kind of can reduce some of that risk. There's like technical risk. Can they actually deliver these kinds of things? There's like market and timing risk. Like is the, is the market and like, is this the right time for this kind of thing? And so there's lots of different ways, kind of dimensions to examine stuff. Um, and then of course, I, going back to like what I was saying before, of like the competitive advantage of like something a little bit more interdisciplinary. I actually think that's like a fun additional kind of filter of like, can't like are there I mean, people often talk about this in terms of like moats like is there kind of some sort of way that this company can kind of like protect itself against competition from others through an ip through like just kind of being able to inter like engage with various domains that other people are just not familiar with or cannot connect together and so i think that's another really good way of like filtering out and kind of assessing whether or not a company really can grow and succeed maybe this is a silly question but is there like a like a survey full of likehart scale questions where you like tick off as you go through it even maybe not literally but something to that effect or is it more like a gut feeling and then like a conversation with the team of whether or not it's good i think it's more i would say it's a little bit less kind of quantitative than what you're saying it's i think more you kind of there's a certain amount of like pattern matching kind of heuristics you're using and kind of engaging with like and becoming comfortable with the company kind of figuring out, and, and also just kind of like working through like scenarios in your head of like okay like can this company in all these different scenarios really kind of succeed and become some fan, like enormously success, successful company. And it's almost kind of like running a series of simulations kind of in your mind. Because often these are very, very early stage companies. So it's like you don't really have a lot of data necessarily to work with. And so you kind of have to run these simulations in your mind in a much more sort of qualitative way. But I, I would say that's, that's probably a better way to think about it. And that was Sam Arsman, author of The Half-Life of Facts and Overcomplicated. We got into his life at Lux Capital, how he evaluates startups, the methodology he has for going out and looking at people, and how he sees himself as a great connector. Thank you for joining us today with Learning with Lowell. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We can be found on Twitter at Lowell this year, Facebook, and on the website, learningwithlowell.com. Also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every Monday, new episodes every Tuesday, and new blog posts around every Thursday. Remember to share and tell your friends. Please and thank you.